chapter 4 begins with the acknowledgement that how we live our lives during our time here on earth, it really does matter to God. He's not uh, inattentive to it. He's not apathetic to it. How we live our lives matters deeply to God. And so Paul instructed the Thessalonians how they were to live a life that was most pleasing to and worthy of God. And my challenge over the last few weeks is how are we doing that? To examine our own lives. How are we living a life that is worthy of and pleasing to the Lord in this gift of grace he's given us? Such a life, Paul writes, is a life that's lived in accordance with God's will. And what is God's will? Well, Paul shares that God's will is that we would be sanctified. That is, we're to separate ourselves from sin to be holy as he is holy. And that sanctification is to permeate every aspect of our lives. So we aren't supposed to hold anything back. We're not, to, not supposed to keep anything separate from God. And this includes the most intimate facets of our lives, such as the expression of our sexuality. You see, what we do with our bodies matters to God as well. Because the body, as Scripture declares, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are no longer our own. We were bought at a price by the blood of Christ. We've been made new creations. We're under new management. Our lives are meant to be for God's glory. And we are not, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, to give our bodies in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Now, there's nothing wrong with passion. There's nothing wrong with sexuality. These are good things that God has given us. But they only remain good as long as they are within, expressed within the boundaries that God has established. We see this even reflected in uh, two of the Ten Commandments, right? We're not to commit adultery, nor are we to covet our neighbor's spouse. So we're not to be controlled by lusts and desires like those who do not know God, but we're to be controlled by the Spirit, led and guided by the Spirit who God has sent us and which dwells within us. It is also God's will that we should abound more and more in love. Paul goes on to write that brotherly love should uh, permeate the interactions and relationships between those who are members of God's family. So between the relationships we have with one another, for example. And that brotherly love literally means a tender affection, a devotion and fondness that's reserved for those born of the same womb. And that love is testimony to the world of the transformation that God has brought about in your life and in my life. The old has gone, the new has come. And there's such freedom in that when we understand that, uh, that in Christ there is forgiveness. The past, with its darkness, its shame, its brokenness, is not held against us to our account, but we have been given the righteousness of Christ. We are new creations, no longer condemned, but born afresh of the Spirit. And that new creation is evidenced in a new way of living a way of living that honors God and is worthy of the grace that he's poured out upon us in and through Christ. And so in verses 11 and 12, which we're about to look at, Paul gives us a glimpse, uh, as he's been doing throughout this letter, of what such a life looks like. And this is the practical day-to-day stuff of a life lived in accordance with God's will. And I think we say, I said we're going to start at verse 9. I was wrong. We're going to start at verse 11. So beginning with verse 11, this is what we read. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So that's from the New International Version. That's the version I use the most often when I preach. Unfortunately, I don't think it conveys the full sense of what Paul is getting at here. I think the New Revised Standard Version does a better job, because in the Greek, the second half of verse 10 as well as verses 11 or 12, they're all one sentence that flow together. 
So they're not separated like it is in the NIV. So this is how it's translated in the NRSV. But we urge you, beloved, to do so more and more. As we're talking about the brotherly love, to love one another more and more. We urge you, beloved, to do so more and more, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we directed you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. So not only is Paul urging them to love one another all the more, he's also urging them to aspire to live quietly. He's urging them to mind their own affairs. And he's urging them to work with their hands. These are all aspects of the life that is pleasing to God, which glorifies his name. And there's a bit of a, a wordplay going on here with that first phrase, aspire to live quietly, isn't as quite as apparent in English as it is in the Greek. But really, those words together are a bit of an oxymoron, two things that just don't go together. The word translated as aspire literally means to love honor in such a way that you're constantly striving for it. It's this desire to be recognized for your achievements or to be ambitious for something. And it implies a restless discontent with the status quo and an ongoing pursuit of something more. And so you can think of an athlete training for the Olympics. Uh, this would be something that they aspire to. They train themselves diligently day after day after day. They forego other things in order to go on with their training. This is what it means to aspire to something. Their, their dedication to pursuing their dreams outweighs everything else. To live quietly, on the other hand, though, means to be at peace, to be at rest. And it conveys the idea of a tranquil life, not burdened by fears and worries or overcome with busyness. Uh, there's really a sense of balance in a life such as this. It's one so, what some people experienced, I think, during the pandemic to a small degree. Uh, the lockdowns of the last couple of years uh, freed people up because they couldn't go out and do all the activities and things they used to do. And, and part of us missed that, and, and we longed for it to be restored. But then I heard from many people that they found a new freedom in that because they found they had more time for their marriage. They had more time for their children. They had a better pace of life because they weren't rushing from one thing to another. And many shared with me they didn't want to return to pre-pandemic busyness that characterized their lives. And that resting from the day-to-day -day hustle and bustle of life, of not being on the rush from one activity or, or burden to the next, of slowing down and appreciating what we have, as opposed to zealously striving for something more, gives us an idea of what Paul means when he says we're to live quietly. So you put those two phrases, or two words together, aspire to live quietly, it's a contradiction in terms. As others have noted, it would be like saying, be ambitious to live without ambition, or to restlessly strive to be at rest. You know, compared to the, much of the world we here in North America live life at a frantic pace. Many are workaholics. We run from one thing to the next without pausing to rest and enjoy what we have. Some live in a constant state of discontent, never satisfied with what they have. They're always hungering for something more. By default, they live in a future which never seems to arrive. But in doing so, they miss out on life in the present. And that way of living isn't in line with God's will for us. It's not what he wants for us. It's not what you and I were created for. Remember what the Lord commanded the Israelites? He said they were to keep a Sabbath, one day a week, where they seized from all work, where they rested, if you will. Uh, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God established the Sabbath as a gift to mankind, that day of rest, because he knew it would be good for us. 
And he understood that many of us left to our own devices would tend to fill up all those empty spaces in life with the lesser things of this world. And in doing so, we would miss out on the greater things that he would have for us. In a similar way, the Israelites were instructed to keep feasts and festivals throughout the course of each year. These served as a reminder of the great things that God had done on behalf of their people. It intentionally turned hearts and minds from the day-to-day uh, ordinariness of life to focus once again upon the Lord their God. But these feasts and festivals benefited Israel in another way. These were times of rest from work. They were times of deeper community with neighbors and were refreshing for mind and body and spirit. And we don't get that when we rush from one thing to another, day after day, hour after hour. Now I enjoy making lists of the things I have to do each day. Anyone with me? Any other? Yes, there's some list makers. Bless your hearts. I enjoy making those lists because it's incredibly satisfying to be able to cross something off when I've completed it. But the reality is this. A life governed by a list, a life governed by a schedule or a calendar may not leave much room for the Holy Spirit to move. And when we live a life which is constantly busy from sunup to sundown, we run the risk of missing what God is whispering to our hearts, speaking to our souls. And I can't help but wonder how many of those who said they never want to go back to the pre-pandemic busyness have in the last six months since life has returned to normal have found their schedules filled up completely again, just as they were before. Folks, we're to live with an eye on eternity, but we're to live our life out, our faith out in the present moments of each day. And so Paul urges us, as as he does the Thessalonians, to aspire to live quietly. So what does that look like for us? How how can you, uh, pardon me, can we say that this is how we're living out our faith in each day? Can you say you're aspiring to live quietly? Uh, that you aren't ambitiously pursuing the passing honors of this world, nor the praise and recognition of your fellow man. When your friends and family consider your life, what do they see? Do they see a life of balance, a life of peace? Or do they see a life so filled with things that you never find the time to rest? A life lived bouncing from one thing to the next that you, that you never have any downtime. Would those who know you best say that they would agree that you're aspiring to live quietly? And if not... If you ask those questions of yourselves and those around you, and if if the answer comes back, they they don't see that in your life, then I want to challenge you to consider what steps you need to take, that you might bring your life into alignment with God's will, that you may aspire, that we may aspire to live quietly. So Paul urges the Thessalonians to grow more and more in brotherly love, to aspire to live quietly, and then, as we see in verse 11, to mind their own affairs or to mind their own business, depending on what translation you're reading from. And there are a number of ways that you and I can understand this. It could be that Paul has in mind some within the church in Thessalonica who are busy bodies. These are people who are always sticking their nose into other people's business, telling others what they should or shouldn't be doing, spreading gossip and division as they do so. People like this stir up trouble and dissension. And frequently, I think it's a case of seeing the speck in someone else's eye, but missing the plank that's sticking out of their own eye. Later in this letter, as well as in 2 Thessalonians, Paul speaks of the busybodies within the church who don't spend their time in productive endeavors. Others have suggested that Paul meant we weren't to concern ourselves with the things of this world in the sense of uh, social reform or from a political perspective. 
So just as the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would come and deliver them from the Roman oppressors and establish God's kingdom on earth, it could be that there were those in the Thessalonian church who wanted to achieve something similar. It's true that we're called to a radical way of living. The way we live our lives should look different than those around us who do not know Jesus Christ. But a radical way of living is different than being a social revolutionary. Uh, overthrowing the government or disrupting society in general is not something we're called to be doing. Jesus hadn't come to establish an earthly or national kingdom at that time. He'd come so that his kingdom might be established in the hearts of men and women just like us who are here today. Ordinary people who have an extraordinary message of love and grace and hope that we're meant to be sharing with those around us. We are in the world, but not of the world. And that's a very challenging balance to find. It can be a difficult path to navigate because what does it look like to live in a society which upholds values and laws and priorities and principles that are complete, uh, completely diametrically opposed to what we believe and to who we are in Christ Jesus? I believe very much we have the freedom to advocate for change just as much as any other citizen of a democracy. I am not always sure that it's been in the best interest of the Christian church to do so, though. See, our desire when we do enter into these things, I think, is to see the, the values, the principles, and morals that flow out of the Christian life be made manifest in our culture. We want people to see the world the way we do. We want them to walk in the light of God's grace and to live lives worthy of this grace. But when we do that, we're asking something impossible of them. And it's impossible because it's the Holy Spirit who transforms us through the renewing of our minds. Those living in darkness have not received the Spirit. They cannot, Scripture says, live a life pleasing to God. Therefore, we can't expect those who are living in accordance with this world system, <clears throat> a system that is opposed to God, to see the world as we see it or to embrace the values and principles and truths that come out of who God is and who we are in Christ as we try to impose these things on others, what we're doing is we're trying to get them to clean up the externals of their life without any internal transformation. And that's a no-win situation. Uh, it's, Christianity is not about do's and don'ts. It's about relationship with Christ. It's about receiving uh, what Christ has done for us. It's not about the things that we do or don't do. The life we live comes out of the reality of the mercy we've experienced at God's hand, the grace that we've received. Um, we can't expect those living in accordance with this world system to embrace values and beliefs that are inherently part of the Christian perspective. There are some religions out there today where they seek to forcibly convert people, to compel them to go through all the motions of faith, regardless of whether or not they believe it or not. You can't do that with Christianity. It's been tried in the past. It does not work. It doesn't work because Christianity, again, is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about confirming, uh, conforming externally to a way of life when there's no, been no inner transformation brought about by the Holy Spirit. Christianity is based on relationship rather than rules. And so if we believe that our society should live by the commands and instructions we find in God's word, and we try to force the world around us into this way of living that's in harmony with the life set forth in the scriptures, 
we're deluding ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves because we're asking the impossible of them. Because the life that we're calling them to is a life only made possible as the Spirit of God is at work within us, transforming us and renewing our minds. However, as individuals, as couples, as families, as a church, we can live in a manner pleasing to God. And we can uphold his word in our homes. We can share the good news of Jesus with those people who are in our neighborhoods. We can pray diligently for God to bring many to faith. We can bear witness to God's love as we do good works on behalf of individuals, families, and even communities themselves. And it may be this type of thing that Paul was referring to when he called the Thessalonians to mind their own business. Instead of involving themselves in the things of the world, perhaps Paul is urging them to be about their father's business, to be about God's business, loving God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving their neighbor as they love themselves. As one commentator has put it, Paul encouraged Christians to be good citizens and exemplary members of their families and of their society, but to do so in a manner consistent with the teachings of Christ. Only in this sense was the Pauline gospel intended to change society. It set out to change individuals who made up society while awaiting that climactic event when the power of God would truly change the world forever. And then Paul goes on from there, from minding our own business, he goes on from there to say the Thessalonians are to work with their own hands. In other words, they are to earn their own living rather than relying on the generosity of others for their day-to-day needs. So they weren't to be freeloaders, living off those who are willing to work. Here's a case in point. To alleviate some of the financial burden of the last couple of years brought about by the pandemic measures and the shutdowns and all that, the Canadian government issued checks to those who met certain criteria. Now, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. That helped a lot of people make ends meet during that time. But there are others who took advantage of the system. And some, even when they were able to return to work, did not do so. It was more, um, it was tempting more, more uh, to their liking to stay at home and to be paid for doing nothing than it was to go back to their place of work. They looked at it as free money. But that money wasn't really free at all, was it? That money has to come from somewhere, and it ultimately comes from the pockets of taxpayers, those who are willing to work. And this is the type of thing that Paul says we're not to be doing. We are to work with our own hands so we don't have to live off the generosity of others. People often look at work as a necessary evil. They would much rather lay on a beach somewhere soaking up the sun. But work has been ordained by God since the beginning. And I want you to understand this. Work was a good thing. Work was a gift given us by God. And so Genesis 2.15 states that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And I get the impression that this work was not a burden. I get the sense that this work was joy and peace. It was only after they'd sinned that the world experienced work differently. To Adam, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. To dust you, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. See, work took on, our experience of work took on a different aspect after the fall. What had once not been burdensome 
now became a burden. What once had not been work in the sense that we think of work now became toil and effort and energy. And though our experience of work may have changed since the fall, I want to encourage you to see work as a gift that comes from God still today. It allows us to put a roof over our heads and food on our tables, clothes on our backs. It enables us to provide for our families, not just for our needs, but many of our wants and desires as well. Work allows us to further the God-given mission that he's entrusted to us. And it becomes a place where we can shine as a light into the darkness as we bear witness to the grace of God. It's through our work that we build into the life of the community of which we are a part. So farmers, for example, they put food on the tables. Doctors seek to bring healing to the mind and body that's been broken in some form. Teachers educate us, and on and on it goes. Through their work, they're building into the life of the community and therefore the life of individuals and families. But work also helps us to build into God's kingdom and the work that he's doing around the world. Because with the monies we earn through our labor, we're able to support missions and and ministries uh, to construct buildings that help us fulfill the work that God has given us here in Parkland, like we're working on right now. It, It allows us to help the needy both at home and abroad. So work is a good thing because it allows us to provide for ourselves. It allows us to be gracious and generous to others. It helps uh, move forward the work of God's kingdom. In 1 Timothy, Paul gives a warning. A warning about those who are unwilling to work and they're in the habit of being idle. And keep in mind that idleness uh, is a state of inactivity. It's a state of not working or being used. It's the opposite of work. If you are idle, you are not working. And so Paul, speaking of those with too much time on their hands and too little to do, writes this. He says, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips in busybodies, saying things they ought not to. Later in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see that Paul warns those uh, or instructs the believers to warn those among their number who are idle. And then in 2 Thessalonians, we read this. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Those are are fairly straightforward words. They're fairly harsh from some people's perspectives, perhaps. But those words are in no way a condemnation of those who are not able to work in the marketplace. The reality is that illness or injury or even age, for example, can prevent a person from working with their own hands, from doing the things they used to do. 
These ones are not to be avoided as are those who are able but unwilling to work. And there's plenty of room for charity to manifest brotherly love as we help out those in need. Uh, the early church looked after widows and orphans, for example, providing them uh, for their need in a very real sense. So we need to understand those verses properly. Some are unable to work. And keep in mind that all work does not look the same. It changes over time in conjunction with the physical and mental changes that uh, we experience as we age. Here's an important principle. We're only held accountable for that which we're able to do. We're not held accountable for that which we cannot do. We're only held accountable for that which we are able to do. And so the one who stays home to raise their children is certainly still working. And in staying home to raise the children, they are freeing their spouse up so that they may go and work, that the family may support itself. And that's important because the scriptures declare that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith. He is worse than an unbeliever, he says. Again, not a condemnation of those who are unable to work, but rather a condemnation of the one who is unwilling to work. You see, idleness opens the door wide for temptation of all sorts to enter in. As we read earlier, it can lead people to becoming busybodies and gossips. But idleness can lead to many other temptations as well. And there's, there's an illustration from the life of King David that, that brings us to light so, so vividly. Scripture says this. This is from 2 Samuel. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. Right? So he's not where he's meant to be. He's not with his army as the king should have been. He was idling away at home. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. That woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her, and we know where things went from them, from there. David's idleness opened up the door for temptation to worm its way into his heart. He ends up committing adultery. He is... Uh, ends up having a man murdered. It costs him the life of his son born of that adulterous union, and none of that would have happened. And so much heartache and grief could have been avoided if David had been doing the things he ought to have been doing, and in so doing, minding his own business. So let me ask you this. Can you say that you are minding your own business? That you're taking care of the things that God has given you to take care of? Or do you find yourself a gossip? Or a busybody? Do you see the speck in someone else's eye but not the plank in your own? We need to ask ourselves this because we are urged and commanded in Scripture to live a life that is pleasing and worthy of God and idleness does not build such a life. Now, when we look at the first 12 verses of chapter 4 as a whole, we discover this. A life pleasing to God is the life that is growing in sanctification and increasing in brotherly love. It is made manifest in a life aspiring to live quietly while it minds its own business and which gives itself wholeheartedly to the work which God has set before it. And Paul gives us two reasons that we're to live according to this pattern that he's established. And the first is this. I want you to understand this. We, we need to understand this together. Your life may be the only gospel that someone ever has a chance to read. All right? Your life may be the only gospel that someone ever has a chance to read. The only thing they may know about Jesus and Christianity and what it means to be a Christian 
is what they see displayed in your life and in my life. So we are to live our day-to-day lives in such a way that we win the respect of those outside of God's family. As Peter has written, we are to live as aliens and strangers in this world. We are to abstain from sinful desires which war against our soul. We're to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So that's the first reason. And the second reason we're to live in this manner is one we've touched on a little bit already, but it's so that we need not be dependent on anybody else. It's not a matter of pride, but rather one of a good testimony before the world. Because the reality is this. This leaves a bad taste in the mouths of our friends and families and neighbors when someone is able to work but are unwilling to do so and is then forced to rely upon the generosity of others. By working and providing for our own needs, we become a blessing rather than a burden to those who rely on us, and we serve as an example to the world of what a life pleasing to God looks like. So that is the first 12 verses of chapter 4. This is what a life pleasing to God looks like. This is what we should be aspiring towards, working towards in our own lives. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to head outside for the baptism. And uh, for those who are watching online, uh, we're sorry. The baptism is not going to be live streamed. Uh, Our cameras are in here, and the baptism tank is outside. So uh, in just a few moments, I'm going to ask Clint to come back up and the worship team, and I, I believe they have another song uh, during this time, Annabella is going to go and get ready, and uh, I'm going to head out to the pool, and, and then uh, you'll join us out there shortly. And so as we close this portion of the service, I want to urge you, as Paul did the Thessalonians, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, be continually growing in sanctification, increasing in brotherly love, aspiring to live quietly, minding our own business if we go about that which God has set before us and to work with our own hands that the light of Christ may shine all the more into the darkness of this world. Let's pray. Father God, we covered much ground this morning. Two verses, but there was so much in there, Father, for us to wrap our minds around. And I pray that uh, your spirit would be at work bringing these things to mind over the course of the next days, that you would give us eyes to examine our own lives and compare them with what we read in scriptures of what a life pleasing to you is. And Father, chances are that you're going to reveal areas of our life that we still need to grow in. And that's to be expected. We, we should be constantly growing in our faith, being uh, increasingly conformed to the image of Christ day after day, week after week, year after year. And so as you open our eyes to where change needs to take place, that our life might be brought into alignment with how you would have us live and the pattern that's been set before us. Let us not feel disheartened by what's revealed. Instead, let us be encouraged that your spirit is moving within us, teaching us, and seeking to bring about the life of Christ within us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.